Hey there, Comply Podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's episode. This week's podcast is the first part of a conversation between four industry experts, including James Kinn from Troutman Pepper, Brian Serafin from Wiener Brodsky Kider PC, Pia Thompson from Lawson GC, and Rhonda McGill from Performline. Today, they discuss their unique insights into compliance on unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices, or more commonly referred to as UDAP. Listen as they discuss background on UDAP, compliance risks to be aware of as it pertains to UDAP, and their take on the CFPB's policy statement on abusive acts and practices. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rhonda McGill, and I am the Senior Director of the Client Success Team here at PerformLine. Today, we wanted to get together with some of our friends to talk about minimizing UDAP compliance risk. And thank you all again for joining us today. I think this is an important topic that really um, has piqued interest. And um, during this campaign for UDAP, we've seen um, quite a few of our folks have expressed a a lot of interest in the content that we've been putting out. Um, So with that said, um, just to give some of that that background as we're talking about UDAP, we know that UDAP has evolved throughout the years and most notably in the 2007, 2008-ish crisis with financial Um, sector, um, Congress started issuing that authority to the states and banking agencies, and then the creation of CFPB in 2010. Um, The financial services industry has changed so much throughout the years, and it's continuously evolving. And it's oftentimes it's going at a faster clip than what our regulators are even able to keep up with. And so at that, but it's still incumbent on the businesses to, you know, stay on top of these evolving regulations. What do you recommend companies do so that they can stay up to date with UDAP regulations and the many emerging issues and trends within it? I can turn it over to whomever would like to jump in and start on that one. Well, as in-house, just super quick, um, I think it's important to have your counsel kind of selected so that you're not always reacting. And so those are an extension of your in-house legal department. And so they'll notify you. They will know about your business. In addition to, um, you know, services and outside vendors that aren't law firms but are heavily embedded in the space uh, because it's very hard in-house to be up to date on all of those things, even with the compliance department, even with regulatory lawyers. You know, we have company things that we're focused on. Mm-hmm. Brian, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, I was just going to say... Um... You know, one of those things actually that I found to be really helpful, the CFPB publishes something, it's about two or three times a year, they're called supervisory highlights. Um, basically, they're, they're reports of violations that the CFPB has been discovering during their examinations. Um, obviously, ex- exams are confidential, so it's all on a no-name basis. But I found it actually it's a pretty helpful source to identify um, either A, issues that they've suddenly seen a lot of people committing, or B, it's kind of a place where they start to sort of put out the first the, the first notions when they have a new legal theory, they'll sort of identify it in some of these highlights. Um, and I've, so I've actually found this to be really useful just as a source of, um, is, is a place where, you can, where they kind of telegraph some, what, what, some of what they're intending to do going forward. 
Um, and you know, the CFP they, they publish a lot of material. They have they, they, you know, guidance statements. They have blog posts and articles on their website, which are a little more consumer oriented. But um, again, you know, uh, these publications they tend to be a pretty good way to find out what's what's coming down the Brian, thank you for pointing that out because one of the things we do is we summarize the quarterly enforcement actions for CFPB that impact our business. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, in California, the DFPI or other states that have an active state bureau so that um, the board is being updated with respect to our industry. So Brian, that was a great uh, reminder that somebody in the compliance department, that is their gig for the board materials each quarter. Absolutely. It's so important. And I think so so often boards are kind of the last to know. So that's a great call out about the importance and the duty of the board. Yeah, just just to add on that, um, and I agree with both Pia and Brian, so I want to just kind of add to what they're saying, build on it. Uh, I agree with Brian 100% that the CFPB's quarterly supervisory highlights are often a precursor to kind of more aggressive legal theories that they will eventually assert or are asserting non-publicly in an enforcement action and you don't see the output until a year later in a public consent order. So that's why you got to review the supervisory highlights in tandem with the enforcement orders because I think that gives you a, a better kind of more complete picture and then to kind of piggyback on one of Pia's comments, um, you know, uh, UDAPs present a lot of challenges, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not for lack of information because there are a lot of uh, bulletins and guidance and consent orders, and it's almost overwhelming, right, if you're in-house. So I think one of the ways that outside counsel can help you is not only just staying abreast, because a lot of people can kind of stay abreast of these developments because they're mostly public, not always. Um, but it's understanding how a consent order supervisory highlight, which uh, the fact pattern may be kind of vague or not applicable to you, how that will translate to your business model or your product. So um, having that knowledge, either in-house or outside counsel, of what you do, of your particular issues and product offerings, and kind of, you know, I think transferring the um kind of the data sources that can be overwhelming and, and kind of sifting through it to say, this is is what's relevant and specifically, how is it relevant to you or to us? Makes a lot of sense. So recently the CFPB issued a policy statement on abusiveness um, to address the changing market. And in a recent speech, um, I cannot remember where it was at, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase what Director Chopra had said, because I, it really was really uh, explanatory background where he said the abusive prohibition is focused on a company's conduct that obstructs people's ability to digest information, whereas deceptions are more concerned with words and abusive actions. So can each of you share some of your thoughts about the policy statement and what do you believe are some of the important takeaways that we should be aware of, especially I'm looking at like AI and, you know, how that's starting to emerge. As these things continue to emerge, what are some of the things that you can think of that people should be aware of as it applies to that abusiveness um, policy statement? I'll start with, let's start with Ryan. Sure. (laughs) 
No, um, I, I think the abusive standard, it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, obviously the, 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 the statute, it covers unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices. And the unfair or deceptive components are fairly well known. I think um, they, those two parts, unfair, deceptive, came from the Federal Trade Commission Act from something like 1938. So those have been around a long time. Long time. They've been <laughs> deeply interpreted by courts. Uh, whereas this abusive prong that kind of came into the CFPB statute is somewhat newer. And so there has been a lot of effort to try and figure out what is abusive that would not otherwise also be unfair or deceptive. Fair, deceptive. Basically, what, what does abusive bring to the game that wasn't already there? Um, so that, that was why the uh, the new policy statement that they issued was pretty interesting. Again, uh, it seems like they're focused, they sort of put it under, under two components. Basically, they, they didn't want, I guess, A, they really don't want people to be taking it advantage or unreasonable advantage of consumers yes just based on sort of circumstances that might arise around the transaction it might it might, it might not even be something that the, the lender or the financial service provider set up but just something that'll prevent the consumer from either understanding the product that's before them or else uh, also Brian, the, can you give some kind of concrete example of that, because one of the frustrations mm -hmm. I think that I find is, you know, it's all so nebulous, and it's a way for them to back in, you know, anything mm -hmm. to UDAP. And so if, if, so I wasn't so convinced that this policy statement helped, really. So if you could give any, you know, examples of how you think it would help a company dealing with consumers, that would be great. Sure. So again, you know, one of the big things, it looks like, you know, they're, they're, they're very skeptical of disclosures and mm -hmm. fine print. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I've noticed is actually they've taken a big interest in websites. Um, so you might have, you know, you have someone signing up for a service on a website, for example, uh, you know, the disclosure might be presented, but if you have to click through a couple extra buttons to get there, or if it's, you know, somewhere on the page where it's just a little harder to see than the, the, the buttons you click right. to go through the sign-up so, process, that's one of those kinds of things that they seem to be focused on. Okay. And, um, and on that, I, I want to say something very specific on that. So this is something that I have to explain to my companies on a regular basis is, and I have had a state attorney's, I've had more than one state attorney's general say to my face, we understand that there isn't a consumer on the planet who will read any of your stuff. We are the ones who will read it and we will judge it. And so I get a lot from my business folks who are like, we're not putting in three extra click buttons and nobody reads it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is something we have to highlight is let's stop with the charade that we are putting this together for consumers. We are putting it together for regulators because it's what they want to see. Because we actually don't want people buying our products who don't understand what they're getting. Like that's actually not good for business um, to have people confused. But what's actually in the words, you have to go over and over it for how the regulators 
are going to read it. Yeah. Um, is is what I find, and especially when they'll say that to your face, that we don't actually care if any consumer was ever confused. Like that, they, they actually, you know, they don't need that. Right. And I think when you think about like, even like the most recent thing around the Legion, you know, and, you know, who's paying the most to get their name in the top 10 or whatever the list is. I think that's another perfect example of where they are going with this type of a thing. Brian or um, James, would you want to? Yeah, just just to weigh in a little bit. Um, you know, these are some great observations. Um I agree with Pia that you're doing this for the benefit of the regulator, not the consumer. Um, and, and I'd say, what else would I add to that about the abusiveness policy? It's It used to be that if you disclose things well and you had proper kind of process, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, clear flow, clear disclosures, you know, people get to click and see things that was adequate. Um, I think. Uh, the abusiveness and the policy statement and also kind of their whole application of unfairness really is about outcomes, right? So the process, the flows, the disclosures can be great, but if they just don't like the outcomes, um, either at an individual transaction level or at an aggregate level, they're going to just assert unfair and abusive. So um, so the CFPB sadly is a, a result-oriented agency. You know, people talk about process. They're not a process-driven, right? Process is you have public, you know, notice and comment. You have a fair, transparent process. People know, companies know the rules of the road. Um, the CFPB kind of, you know, they have their idea of what their outcome is, and then they play a little bit of gotcha with you, right? So, and, and then so. What does that mean for companies? So uh, one of the ways I try to give practical advice is um, really what the CFPB and others want is almost a fiduciary duty. Um, And my colleagues joke with me and they say, James, strike almost. They want a fiduciary duty. Fiduciary duty, yes. And and, and so that's uh, the reason why I like using that concept. You'll never see that word anywhere in CFPB literature, but I like to use it as a good practical kind of a way of explaining it to companies because people understand fiduciary duty yeah. product suitability in other fields like security so they can transfer it right yeah i so, just wanted to say like for the audience if you could kind of really break that down like what the, do you mean when you say fiduciary duty like in our world what would that look like i mean that means you have to not just be honest and transparent with the consumer. You have to look out and protect their interests, yeah. right? I mean, you're taking it to another. They are your fiduciary. You owe them a fiduciary duty, right? That's the outcome. Like you have to give the consumer a good, fair outcome. It's not enough to just say caveat emptor. I disclose, and if you do whatever you do, that's on you, not on me. That's not good enough. That's fiduciary duty. And the one other thing I'd say about the policy statement, I'd love to get people's reaction to it, is it's, again, not in the policy statement, but uh, Director Chopra's kind of testimony, I think it was testimony, or it might have been his press conference announcing the policy. I think he let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Uh, To Brian's point, there's a lot of precedent and guidance around unfair and deceptive. And when Chopra was at the FTC, he was often critical of the FTC and what they did and didn't do. 
And so what Director Chopra said in his, I think it was testimony, but it was public remarks is he likes abusive, I'm paraphrasing, because it's not bound by the precedent that he doesn't like about unfair and deceptive. So he he has a clean slate to just do whatever he wants and all the adverse guidance and precedent and cases on UDAP with 1A, like, like irrelevant to him, like no barrier. Yeah. And I think particularly, again, in the financial service industry, this can kind of become an issue because, for example, uh, a consumer is working with a mortgage officer or a bank consultant about which mortgage should you get or which account should you open. You know, the, the mortgage officer, the bank consultant, they kind of have an interest in making the sale, mm-hmm. which oftentimes will be the product that's best suited for the customer. But maybe sometimes <laughs> there can be some differences of opinion of what's the best product. Absolutely. And um, again, I guess the CP really doesn't want customers to get the impression you're solely focused on doing, you know, picking the product that's the exact perfect one for them. For sure. Now that's... So they, don't, they, don't want the, they don't want the customer to think that. For right. sure. And, and Rhonda, I want to go to one of the things you said in the intro about, you know, so much of this obviously came out of 2000. 2008 and the mortgage crisis and the financial crisis. And Brian, you just mentioned mortgage officers. Well, one of the things that I have found over the last 15 years is the agencies and the regulators don't seem to understand the difference between a secured and unsecured product. And so I think a bunch of these concepts Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying they're completely irrelevant, but ability to repay when it is not tied to your home, when it is not tied to all these other things, is that so relevant? Or is that perhaps an infantilizing of the consumer who needs the loan to make their own decisions? They need this lump sum. They can make their own decisions about what they're going to pay back and what their choices they're going to make from their monthly budget, right? Um, And so they're being kept from getting this lump sum Mm -hmm. because of a tool that wasn't really meant for that product. And so James and Brian, I'd love to kind of get your feedback on that because I've had some difficult times with the Department of Justice, with all sorts of agencies where no matter how many times I explain it's an unsecured product, they just, they don't get it mm-hmm. and they don't care. You know, so one of the things that's uh, sort of interesting, again, this is with the CFPB and with some of this consumer protection generally, you know, in a lot of areas of law, the law kind of asks, what would the reasonable person do? Mm-hmm. The reasonable person standard. But when you get into consumer protection, particularly, for example, in dealing with the CFP, they're more focused on what would be, quote, least sophisticated consumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, they're, they're, so again, they're kind of sort of bending over backwards to kind of make all inferences in favor of the consumer might be one way to look at it. So again, you know, part of it is, um, you know, what what are what are consumers going to understand? Basically, in some ways, it almost has to be spoon fed to them, or you know, how do you highlight what are the most important parts? Yeah. So so you're not 
you know, overloading them with a hose full of words that, you know, not all of them are going to get through. I think that's important. Again, as, as far as your point of, um, you know, the unsecured loans, again, I think that goes to making them understand what are the consequences if you, for example, don't pay back what you owe. Yeah. Yeah. Making sure they understand that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. Just taking my shot at Pia's question. I agree. It's very paternalistic. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes the government folks cross the line and in the name of consumer protection, they're really picking winners and losers in the marketplace. Um, and uh, it, just some kind of contextual data points, like when Elizabeth Warren over the years uh, talks about the post office offering loans um, and, you know, banks make too much money. I mean, all of that indicates like in, in her mind and people who think like her that um, it, it really banking should be just a utility. That's a kind of a low profit, widely acceptable kind of a vanilla product for everybody. And the problem with that is you, you lose innovation, you lose competition. So as a fintech focused practitioner, one of my common challenges is explaining, educating, defending like a, a kind of a novel product to a regulator because they're so robotic and rigid in their thinking. If it doesn't fit neatly in a regulated box, they're immediately very skeptical of it and they think it's, you know, harmful and they don't realize that it's often um, a market driven positive alternative to existing products or um, an existing problem or gap in the marketplace. Absolutely. Well, and and on that topic, to, to take it out to some concrete examples. So I have two things on this, you know, having loans available at libraries or post office. Um, so the, I was speaking with someone from the CFPB and I had a high interest loan product and this guy at the CFPB said, well, I don't understand why these people aren't going to banks. And so I said, I agree with you. And I don't know why they don't have private bankers too, because it's so nice. Like I never had to call a toll free number. Like, I don't understand. Why don't they do that? Yeah. Right. And it was just so obnoxious on his part. Right. It, we're talking about people who don't have every option. And then here's the second thing, and it goes really directly to this post office idea. So I've been in the subprime space a lot and in the prime space. But in the subprime space, what are the states doing? They are putting in interest rate caps, right, of 36%. Well, that doesn't mean subprime people get 36% loans. It means they don't get any loans. And so if the government has an issue with very high percentage rates that have to exist for two reasons, right? They exist because of defaults and they exist because of cost of capital, right? And who has the least cost of capital? National banks, right? It, back in the day there, 10 years ago, their cost of capital was zero, right? And they still won't make these loans. So then you go to the fintechs who sometimes have 12%, 14% cost of capital. Then they have big default rates. And so to be able to offer the product, you, the math 
is the math and you end up with these high rates. And so because subprime lenders are demonized, they decide we're putting in a cap. That'll be the end of this. Well, you know what? If you want to put subprime lenders out of business and not have 50, 60, 90% interest loans, go ahead. Give loans at the post office for 30%. And maybe it is a public good that as taxpayers, we subsidize the defaults, right? That's a whole philosophical discussion as to what we should do as a society. But let's have that discussion. discussion. But instead, they just ban it. And so, James, I think that really goes also to your point where Stop talking about it. If you're going to do it, do it. But instead, what you're doing is you're taking this huge group of the American population and saying you don't get credit. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a great, um, great discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Comply Podcast. Many of the key topics of discussion today are highlighted in our top UDAP compliance issues report, which I will drop for you in today's show notes. And if while listening to our podcast today, you realize you may need to prioritize incorporating UDAP into your marketing compliance program, I'm also going to include a link to our UDAP resource library. It has a number of helpful pieces to help you better understand and prioritize UDAP compliance. As always, for the latest content on all things marketing compliance, you can head to content.performline.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.